Hi, I'm Pamelia Chia, founder of Singapore Noodles, writer of Wet Market to Table, and your host for the Singapore Noodles podcast, where I will be bringing you honest and insightful dialogue with people who care deeply about local food. If you'd like more content, go to sgpnoodles.com for recipes, video tutorials, and more. And be sure to check out our planner for the new year. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. Chef Damon De Silva is one of Singapore's most respected authorities on local food. For decades, he has been championing heritage food at Soul Kitchen, Immigrants, Folklore, and now Kin. In many of his interviews, he talks about how we have become so fixated on searching for our shared identity that sometimes we lose sight of the differences that make us beautiful. Welcome, Chef. I'm so happy to speak with you today. Pleasure. You've been working so hard to preserve our culture over the past few decades. So can you start by telling me exactly what it is that you're working towards? It's been the longest time that I've been trying to put Singapore heritage cuisine in a place where it's comfortable among Singaporeans and it can be treasured. And more importantly, it can be not exported, but it can be shared throughout the world. Real Singapore heritage cuisine. The the emphasis sometimes I also feel, it always favors a particular ethnic group that is in season now, right? Like Pranakan. Yes. You know, little Nonia came on the screen and they of course interviewed a lot of different Puranakans and they tried their best to try and make it as real as a Puranakan family. But you know, they failed to realize that the true Puranakans do not speak Mandarin. You know, some of them don't even speak Hokkien. It's a, it's a patois of English and Malay, more Malay than English, right? But it also depends which part and what Puranakan are you. If you're Penang, you probably would speak more Hokkien than English, right? If, you, if you're more on the border of, um, I would say, Thailand and Malaysia, where the Teochew Puranakans do exist, um, it's, again, uh, it's very different. Then when you go to Indonesia, to the real islands, it's more Hokkien than anything else. But the Puranakan cuisine there is so different from what any Puranakan is used to, to eating in Singapore. It is more Chinese than it is Peranakan. Besides the Peranakan, the only other cuisine which is emphasized on is Chinese, right? But when you say Chinese in Singapore, Hainanese, people only always talk about chicken rice. But the Hainanese cuisine is so varied. There's so many dishes in the repertoire, right? When I speak to Hainanese, right, it's really funny, you know, I ask them, can you name me five Hainanese dishes? They give me this blank stare, you know? And I say, don't tell me you only know chicken rice. And they're like, yeah, chef. It's like, like an example, right? You have the Singapore Food Festival. To me, the Singapore Food Festival is the biggest joke there is, okay? I, 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 I say that, because they keep doing the same things. They try and be different. And then they invite chefs that have got no idea what Singapore cuisine is all about. That's the worst thing, right? And this is the Singapore Food Festival. Singapore, you know, is the, is, is the key word here, right? So where are the Hainanese dish, dishes? Where are the Hakka dishes? The Teochew? The Malay, not just Malay, but from the different parts 
of Indonesia, the different parts of Malaysia, the Krabus, you know, the 50 different types of Krabus they are, the Eurasians, the Peranakans, all coming together and all showcasing Singapore heritage food, right? And if they keep at it, every year we have, let's say, and it's chosen, every year we have 50 stalls. And these 50 stalls will always be there because it's all hot. Whenever they do, it's all hot. It could be grandmothers and eventually mothers taking over and then doctors taking over, right? And it's very selective because if you don't know the culture and you want to be involved in it, yes, you can. But if you don't want to be involved in it, then you don't cook. That's it, right? So people get to taste Singapore, Singapore's culture. And the story as well that comes along with it. You know, it's not just the food. The more important thing is the story. You know, why did this dish exist? Where did it come from? You know, um, why is there mustard in Dibal? You know, is there only one type of Dibal? Why is it that some homes they cook, they, they do pork? Some homes chicken, you know, is it because chicken was cheap, cheaper? No, pork was always cheaper in the past. Not chicken, chicken was expensive. Pork was cheap, so pork was used more, you know. But what is right and what is wrong? Who cares? Seriously, who cares? As long as it is as real as what your heart is. Meaning, it comes from a recipe that's from your grandma or your grandfather. And this is, and it has to be the same, right? You cannot, for example, right, if a dish contains wolf herring, and he says, God, wolf herring contains too much bone. Uh, why don't I use another fish that has got no bones? No, wrong, lazy. That's not, you know, that's, you see, that's where you lose your culture. That's where you lose your heritage. When you change things for the sake of, you know, of laziness, or when you can't find an ingredient, or you don't know how it looks like, and you're not bothered to go and do any research or speak to people, and you use something else. Mm -hmm. That's when everything changes. And I think I see it happening in a lot of different dishes in Singapore. A lot. Okay, I think I've spoken enough. <laughs> it was so good. I didn't want to interrupt you. I learned a lot. But I think the main question that I have for you after hearing all that you had to say is, it seems like you have a very... Um, no compromise kind of approach when it comes to heritage cooking. Um, and I think that makes it very intimidating for a young Singaporean who might feel very put off by the many steps or by how hard it is to source for certain ingredients, not just in Singapore, but any part of the world. So I live in Melbourne and, you know, I try very hard to cook heritage food even though I'm far away. I live in the countryside in Melbourne and it's really hard to find certain ingredients like the specific kind of fish, the specific kind of squid that we use in Hokkien Mee. So I was just yes. wondering what your take is on that. You know, if I were to substitute something else, uh, would you think of it as not heritage food? No, not at all. The more important thing here is to know what the dish, the existence of the dish, meaning the ingredients that I use, how it's done. If you know that, and you eventually understand the taste, right? Then you'll be able to make your changes according to what ingredients you have. So you cannot, it can't be guesswork. You must not forget there are dishes 
that have evolved over two, three hundred years. Now, over those two, three hundred years, things have changed and they have almost come to a stage of perfection. Okay? I believe that perfection is a word that should not exist in any kitchen. If, if you say that my dish is perfect, then I'm telling you, oh, then it's got no soul. What's, how can a perfect dish have soul? It can't, right? You do it, you do it perfect today, and then tomorrow you do something better. So where's the perfection in there? So a dish has got to be, it has to have soul. So imperfect is good. Honestly, it's good, right? So here, here comes your answer. If you can have ingredients that you are comfortable using, that means you, you, you know that if you can't get, as an example, uh, blue ginger, but you can find a substitute for blue ginger, then you know, you know, if I use less, if I use more, um, if it's powdered, if it's fresh, if it's dry. So it's all about understanding the ingredient and then making the changes, right? It's not about telling yourself, oh, we just take this ingredient because I can't get the other ingredient. Then that's where you're wrong, right? Mm -hmm. But if you take the time and the effort to make the changes, to understand it, then, you know, you'll be able to execute a dish to the best of what you know. And then when you go to a place, when you have the ingredients, your dish will be better, mm. right? So I, I always tell people, and says, oh, you know, um, I can't get the ingredients. I says, look, have you even tried? Have you, have you gone to the different markets? Oh, you know, my markets are, yeah, okay, then go to a different market then, you know? I know people who live in Russia, yeah? I'm not kidding you, that, call, that, that, commute, that communicate with me once in a while. And they love, they love a dish. And like I said, you know, wolf herring, and they can't get wolf herring. And I tell them, look, find an oily fish, right? And there is, herring is an oil, oily fish. I said, use herring, you know? And, and, and they use turmeric powder instead of fresh turmeric. But that works as well. So eventually, what happens is that they get a dish that is not 100%, but it's about 90%. So I feel that what you're saying is that there has to be a reference point, a kind of a flavor memory that you kind of associate with the dish or, you know, a certain standard to which you hold the dish and then you adapt and you understand the cooking process and what that brings to the dish. But what if uh, a Westerner or a foreigner who has never been to Singapore would like to cook Singaporean cuisine at home? Without that reference point, how can they create something that's authentic? You see, hence my... Hence my you know, my effort of trying to get Singapore on the map, right? Because, you know, there's so much, there's so much information on Thai cuisine. So much, right? You even have, you even have an Englishman that wrote a, you know, a top-selling Thai cookbook. David Thompson. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, there, there's so many... There's so many people that have written about Thai cuisine, and you ask yourself why? Why is, you know why is Thai cuisine so popular in, in everywhere in the world? In Germany, everywhere you go, there's Thai cuisine, right? There's Chinese, but there's more Thai than there's Chinese today, you know. And the reason for that is very simple. You know, the Thai government, right? For every restaurant that opens outside of Thailand, you know, the Thai government supports. Uh, really? Yes, they do. They do. 
Yeah. I've never heard of this. They really do. No, they really do. They really do. Because eventually, what happens when you promote the food? Who are you promoting? You promote the country. Right? That's what you do. You promote the country. So, I mean, I'm not saying that, okay, come on, Singapore government, let's give us $100,000 and go all over the world and open up. But you can do something similar, similar to what the Thais do, right? So that people will take an interest, send you ambassadors, you know, and send the right ambassador. I'm not saying, uh, take Damien De Silva, I think he's a great heritage ambassador, send him all over the world. And, no, I'm not saying that. What I'm trying to say is that there are people out there who really believe in what they do. Meaning, like for example, you have a Malay auntie from Kedah and she's been cooking all her life, right? So what I said to you about doing the Singapore Food Festival where you get all the different people coming in, right? And then you get people, you get tourists that come to Singapore because they will, trust me, for the last 12, 13 years, I've been, going to, I've been going to Amsterdam. Amsterdam holds the largest Eurasian festival and it's been going on for the last 35, almost 40 years. At each Eurasian festival, right, there are something, there's something like 50 to 60,000 people from all over the world. Okay? Now, you think about it seriously. If we can do a Singapore food festival that encompasses all the different ethnicities, and I'm talking about, you know, get get a panel of people that know what the food should taste like um, and more importantly whether it's good or it's bad you not only showcase food you show you showcase culture as well and what is culture your teochew opera that's culture kudakapang kudakapang is a very special show before in the past that's only done during weddings it's actually they actually go into a trance in the past they used to sit on the horse but then Today, they don't have a horse, so they actually sit on a wooden horse and they go into a trance and they dance and, you know, this is fascinating, you know, to people that have not seen this before. Does this happen in Singapore? This Malay, Malay um, performance? Yeah, I used to, I used to watch Kunakapang as a small boy till maybe I was in my 20s, right? Then it disappeared, hmm. you know? So, what I'm saying that you imagine you have a Singapore festival with all these different shows. Come on, man. The Singapore, the Singaporeans themselves have not seen it before in their life, right? But, you know, when you put it all together and then you have, you have, your, you have your Indians um, and, you know, a lot of the cultural festivities, the, the dances, the music that comes out of it as well. Now, that showcases how special and unique Singapore is. You know, you say uniquely Singapore, and then when you have this, this Singapore Food Festival, what's so unique about it? I agree. There's nothing unique. I think sometimes it's all about the optics. And I feel that there's so much from our culture that should be celebrated. I'm currently working on a planner that celebrates different festivals in Singapore. And while working on it, I was interviewing different Singaporeans from different ethnicities, like from the Chetty Malakas to, to Eurasians to Indians and even to Parsis. And I was just wondering, you know, I've been growing up so many years in Singapore, living amongst different cultures and different ethnicities, but I've never really understood what it meant when people you know, celebrated Hari Raya Pasa, for example, or like what people yeah. did during Hari Raya Haji. 
You know, I didn't even know that they went to the temple and they actually witnessed animals being slaughtered in the temples. And I feel that why is that so? I mean, why is it that we we say that we are multicultural and multiracial? And yet, I didn't know what my neighbor was doing in her own culture. I, I think it's very simple. I think because we don't celebrate it enough. You know, we don't embrace our our different ethnicities enough. You know, but you know, I'll be very honest with you. You know, in the past, right when I was growing up, right when we celebrated Christmas or Chinese New Year, you know, all our neighbors came to our house. So, mom would actually cook food that didn't have pork in it. Okay, that's for that's for our Malay that's for our Malay friends, and you know, I don't know whether this is politically correct, but I'm <laughs> going to say it anyway. In the past, halal did not exist. It didn't exist, right? So our friends would come to our house and they would eat food that my mother would have prepared. So the same, right? So you, you have, you know, when they celebrated Hari Raya, Haji or, or Pasa, we went to the house and we, we knew what was going on. You know, we had, I had a neighbor that was a tanki. You know what a tanki is? No. A tanki is a medium. Oh, okay. And this lady would go into a trance and become the goddess of mercy. Okay, so occasionally she became the goddess of mercy. Occasionally she would become the monkey god. And I used to find it really hilarious, you know, to see a lady right becoming the monkey god, and she would react just like a monkey. This is something that a lot of Singaporeans don't. Some of them are afraid. Some of them, you know, don't want to be involved. But it is it is culture. It is their culture. They, it has been inherent in their, in their ethnicity for thousands of years. You know? So they embrace it, right? So as they embrace it, they also want people to understand what's going through when something like this happens. So I think what has happened over the years, we have forgotten all this. It, it, no, it, it kind of becomes um, too confined. You know, we, we, we don't want to share it with other people because we are afraid to offend them or we want to keep it to ourselves, you know, because this is how we are. We don't want other people to know about it. I think, you know, that's what's happened, you know. And that's very sad. Mm. That's very sad. Because from all these different cultures came a lot of different food as well. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I used to remember going to my auntie Zainab's house and I, I would look forward to it every year during Hari Raya. Why? Because Auntie Sainat made the best ketupat and she made the best sambal prawns. I mean, the sambal prawns were so good that, you know, I even told my, my mother, sorry, la, your sambal prawns not as good as Auntie. But it's true. It's yeah. true, you know. Um, and, 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 you know, if I, if I didn't have Auntie Zainab, I would never have had, you know, the opportunity to, to taste the food. I also never have had the opportunity to, to celebrate what they celebrated. You know, we used to sit on the floor. It was very common then, when you, when you went to a Malay home during Hari Raya, you would sit on the floor and there would be a dulan. A, a dulan is basically a, a large plate and all the food would be put on it, right? So you would sit down and you would have about eight to ten people sometimes eating from that same plate. And it was, it was, a, it was a celebration. You know, and you enjoyed yourself. You ate your fill, and after you finished, you would you would move on, and and you know you 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 come back if you were hungry again. You see, this is what is missing now. Mm. 
when you were talking about how um, there would be these cross-cultural exchanges where you would go over to your Malay friend's house and they would come over to your Eurasian um, family's kind of dinner, it really reminded me of this uh, blog post that I read while doing research for the planner. So I'm not sure if you know about Pongal, which is an Indian harvest festival. Yes. So I read about how in the past, you know, they, they used to celebrate it in the courtyard of houses. And all yeah. the neighbors, whether you're Chinese, Malay, Indian, you would yeah. all stand together and chant Pongalo Pongal, you know? Yeah. And I think yeah. they said that that was really beautiful because it really embodies our creed and our national pledge, which is regardless of race, language, or religion, you're living in the same place. So why do you think that has been lost? Is it, you know, the whole shift from like this kampong era to like this modern? For sure, for sure. Like I said to you, you know, culture didn't have any money in it. So it was locked inside a safe, you know. And then when Singapore became prosperous, they took it out again and tried to bring it back. It was too late. It's, it was too late because, you, you know, it's like, it's like, one dish that a family cooks. And you just think about it, right? And you don't cook it for 30 years. And you have one generation that has passed on already. So another generation. Now that new generation, that, that next generation that tries to cook the dish, the only information they have is probably from some, some aunts and somebody else which is not even the same ethnicity, giving them the recipe. So it's lost. So same here, you know, for more than 30 years, all this cultural activity was lost. You're right, because before we used to live in a community, right? Um, whether it was, it was mainly, it was mainly, I hate to say the word, I hate to say the word kampong, but it, it was. You know, even if we live in an estate, we still had friends that lived in a community with different um, ethnicities. But even in a private housing estate, you know, with the different ethnicities, even I knew my neighbor that was perhaps maybe, I'm not kidding you, yeah, that was maybe about, you know, a mile away. And we used to frequent each other's places. Today, you ask people, do you know your neighbor in your HDB block, which is like, you know, you open your door, you can say hello. No, I haven't seen my, I've never met my neighbor since I moved in. And I'm thinking, what the hell is going on here? You know, you don't even know your neighbor. And, you know, your neighbor is right across from you. Why is that so? Mm. You know, when I was growing up, I mean, along the street, I knew everyone, right? Both in front and the same row as I. And on the back street, you know, we had, we had, um, we had, we had one, two, two rows, right, of, 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 uh, of, of private housing. And then on the main road, I knew people there as well, you know, because, because we were like, you know, I don't know, we lived in the same neighborhood. Like you say, we live in the same community, you know, mm -hmm. and we all went, whether we went to church or whether some of them went to temples, you know, and, and you're right. I had Hindu friends. I had Malay friends. I had Chinese friends from different dialects. I had Eurasian friends where I tell them, your mother doesn't cook as well as my grandfather. <laughs> but it's true, sorry. <laughs> and, and, and you know, we all went to each other's house at special occasions and we celebrated together with them, 
right? It was almost like you are you are showing off, you know, what your what your ethnicity is all about. You're proud to be Indian, you know. Look, come, come to my house for, for Diwali because you know, mom is making this, you know, this sweet grandma is cooking this wonderful different dishes. And you go there and it's true, mom is making, you know, sweets and you're welcome, you know, everybody, you, it's, it's hard, you know, it, but it's gone. Yeah, I think you, you talked a lot about, you know, how this current generation is so uncomfortable with speaking with our neighbors or just, you know, having a chat and reconnecting with people in the real world rather than on screens. And I think that's something that I really learned when I went back to shop at the wet markets. So I wrote a cookbook on wet markets a while ago. And I think that was the biggest thing that I learned was that it was so different from any other place in Singapore because you were forced to have those kind of connections. You were forced to speak with one another. It, it, it just feels like such a small community. And now even when I move to Melbourne and their farmer's market, I feel like it's very different because farmer's market are like maybe one in a whole town or one in every city. But in Singapore, it's like one wet market every neighborhood. And each, each wet market is like a small microcosm of that, of that culture, you know? The other thing about wet markets is that it's, it's not just run by, by Chinese storeholders, it's run by Malays, run, it's run by Indians, you know, different ethnicities uh, sell different things. And in that, in that small, let's say, your, your, your curry powder man, right, that sells the different curry paste and powder to, there's Chinese, there's Malay, there's Indians, there's Eurasians, there's Peranakans, all of them go to, to, to buy from him. And he's known them ever since he's been around there, you know? And he knows what, you know, when he sees his auntie or uncle, he knows exactly what they want. You know, when he, when he comes to them and says, uh, I want chicken curry. And he knows that, okay, this uncle, his chicken curry, he wants extra chili. So he makes it with extra chili, right? And, 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 that's what, and that's what's nice about it. But if you go to the market, right, you will notice that it's very difficult to find people, you know, um, below, I don't know, 25? You find that the more, you know, more, more the people, uh, more of the people that go to the market, right, uh, kind of like in your 50s. When I was yeah. writing the book and I went to wet markets, I felt like I was the only young person there. Everyone yeah. was either an old person or a domestic helper. Which is sad, you know, which is really sad. But, but I must say, you know, God, work, God works in mysterious ways. Bad or good, right? Ever since COVID started, you find a lot more people going to the market. And when I say a lot more, I see people in their 20s, I see people in their 30s, they all go to the market now. But why is so that? They go, because, because, you know, when restaurants shut down, right? And then when markets started opening up, um, people didn't want to go out and eat. They were safer to eat at home. So they would go to the markets, they would buy, you know, it could be um, a young couple, it could be uh, a couple with a kid, it could be a, a, a second generation or, you know, a, third generation family and you find that they would follow their grandparents around which I very seldom see and you can hear the grandparents telling them okay uh, this is what fish this is you know and, and I think it's wonderful if you take the effort to listen to the elderly um, they've got the experience 
right? Um, and if you're doing something, and if you, you know, if you embrace it, and then you, eventually you will understand the culture so much better as well. When I, when I see people going to the market and, you know, they, they ask questions, um, you know, they ask the fishmonger questions or they ask the beef, the mutton seller, you know, the vegetable seller. And then they, you find that, you know, some of the vegetable sellers, some of the fish, they'll tell you, oh, this one you don't steam, this one you make asam. And then you can hear them, right, uh, what, what is asam? Huh? Then the fishmonger will give them this, you know, this really strange look like, where the hell have you been, man? You know, you don't know where it's asam. But it's, but it's a good thing, right? So, and the one, you know, as much as I hate to say this, you know, Google has done, I would say, it has, it has not done a fantastic job, but it's done enough to sort of, you know, encourage people to cook, right? Of course, you've got YouTube as well, you know? So you Google, and then, you know, you, 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 you go to YouTube, and then you have an understanding of, you know, how a dish is supposed to be executed, and then you do it. I, like I, I said, and I always will say it, it really doesn't matter what your recipe is or, you know, the important thing is that you go to the market, you buy the ingredients, you bring it back and you cook, right? From your cooking, eventually, hopefully, you'll find someone that has got information where you can extrapolate, you can learn and you can bring it back to your house and eventually you can execute a dish the right way. The important thing is that you start cooking. So when I first started Singapore Noodles and I really wanted to promote heritage food, I think one of the feedback that I received right at the start was that, can you share more easy dishes or like five ingredient type meals or 30 minute kind of weeknight dinner? What, I give you a one ingredient dish. Yeah, chili garam. One ingredient, I'm not kidding you. Chilies, that's it. You either use fresh or you use dry or you use a combination of both. They are chilies anyway, right? So if you use dried chilies, you obviously have to soak it in water and then you, yeah, simple, like you blend it. Don't use your pestle and mortar, just blend it, you know? And you blend it till it's medium, I would say. Um, well, not, not coarse, but you know, there's a little bit of texture in it. A little bit of texture. Now, here's the key, is to cook it long enough to extract the sweetness out of the chilies. Okay? When you've done that, and the chilies are ready, you just add lime, sugar, and salt. Mm -hmm. That's it. And then, you put it onto fish, or you, you add um, your pork tenderloin, tenderloin slices. Yeah? And you know, a lot of people that I've taught this dish, says, you know, it's the most amazing dish, isn't it? It's just chilies. I says, yeah, it's just chilies, you know? But it requires a lot of patience because your fire, your flame cannot be big. It has to be small. And why I teach people this dish, because it teaches patience. If you cook and you don't have patience, it'll never work, right? Because cooking is about understanding what you're doing and it's about taking your time you know, and understanding why you're taking such a long time to cook. Why is this, you know, not, not cooking quicker than it's supposed to. And then when it's ready, right, 
it brings a smile to your face mm. and you know that you've done something right. And then when you add the lime sugar and salt, it becomes an entirely different dish. Yeah. And when you put the pork tenderloin slices into it, it just exhilarates to, you know, this, this most complicated dish you've ever done, right? And you're thinking, cannot be like, it's only chilies. But yeah, it's so good, you know? Try so that I, always people, I always tell people, chili garam, just try it, right? Because, you know, true, yeah, you know, why so many ingredients? But if you can execute chili garam, you can do everything. Mm. But I feel that people these days don't even have patience, you know, we've been bred in this culture of instant gratification where everything is instant and five minute long. So I feel that, so how do you feel we can encourage Singaporeans to really cook more heritage food, given that a lot of the recipes involved are very laborious in nature? I, I think that is a real challenge. I'll be very honest with you, okay? It's something that I've been trying to fight for the longest time. Yeah? You know, I've, I've given cooking lessons for the last 15 years, okay? And all my cooking lessons, right, the youngest that comes uh, in, the, in the late 30s, right? If I get someone in their 20s, I'm very, very happy. And it's not that I'm unhappy teaching mothers and grandmothers. I'm actually very happy. I'll tell you why I'm happy. Grandmothers will go home and cook for their daughters and grandchildren. Mothers will go home and cook for their children. So what I'm doing is actually passing them information so that they can pass to their siblings to their kids, you know, which is very important, right? So I'm just waiting for the day where I have a young person coming and says, you know, you taught my mother how to cook this dish and I'll be really, really happy. You put me on the moon, man. But, but it's tough. It's very difficult to get young people. You're right. They don't have, I would say they don't have the patience. They want to see instant gratification. You know, it has to be now right uh they don't want to cook something for three hours it's too much time they don't want to go and buy all these ingredients in the in, in the wet market because you know i, I don't want to be among so many people it's too crowded you know i i can i can i order online or not can i call someone to deliver and that's what you have today i mean i'm not kidding you there is someone that i know that actually sells fish online you know, it's very common now in Singapore. Some of them even have an auction. It's a joke, you know, really. It's a, it's a, it's a person that's not even a fishmonger. He goes to Jurong Market, he buys fish, and then he has all these people on Zoom, right? And they all bid for it online. Can you know? It's, it's, it's a joke. I mean, can you not go to the market? There's, there's a lot more picking for your picking. There's all, the prices are also better. You have been a champion of local food for so long and heritage food. So how do you think people like myself or the younger generation can continue your efforts? I, I always believe, right, if you continue to do what you believe in, don't worry about what other people say, you know. 
don't also worry about whether or not you're going to win a Michelin star, whether or not you're going to get, um, you know, the important thing I, the important thing I think is you make your soul happy. Mm. That's the most important thing, right? And if you make your soul happy, right, people can see it. They will. They can see it when they eat your food. They can see it when they speak with you. And they can see it, you know, when, when you conduct um, a talk, when you conduct a class. And I think that's the only way, right, to, to because, you know, heritage food is not about winning awards. If you, if you want to do heritage food and, and you want to win an award, you know, I, I, I tell you, go to another country. <laughs> go to another country. Because it's not. Heritage, heritage food cannot win awards. Okay? If you win an award, that means you have changed it so much that it's not heritage anymore. What is it about heritage food that makes you say that it can't win any awards? Because it is too complex. It needs, it, you, you know, it's not about, it's not like fine cuisine. In Michelin star restaurants, it's all about perfection. Yeah. In heritage food and home cooking, it's hard. Hard cannot win you awards. Can't. Perfection wins you awards. Okay? And if you look at El Bui, it's all about perfection. It's, it's, it's doing things that nobody else is doing. Okay, there, there are restaurants. Azar. I love Azar because I've been there, right? I've been to Azar before it became a Michelin star restaurant. All right? And they used to do a dish which I used to call Spanish Sotong Masaita. If you know what Sotong Masaita is, it's squid black ink, right? So Azar used to do a dish. So in the morning, they would get the squid. They would remove the, the inside of the squid. They would take the tentacles, they would chop it up, and then with bayon ham and, 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 and shallots, and they would stuff it. And then the squid ink, they would cook it in squid ink. You know, and I tell you, it looks like Sotong Masaita. I'm not kidding you. The only difference is that we cook it and they would bake it. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, and, and you know, I ate it and I'm like, God, this is just like Sotong Masaita. You know, it's so good, right? Um, but you try and do it today, you, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it won't win you an award. It won't win you an award. That's what I think, you know. I, I think you need to be not just inventive, right? You need to put in, you need to put in a certain amount of um, difficulty. And the difficulty doesn't arise from doing a dish for like two days, you know. Um, I, I give you an, a classic example, nasi ulam. Okay. A lot of people think nasi ulam is easy to do. Yes, it's easy if you execute it well. If you use the right ingredients, and you know, it's not about it's not about cutting it to you know to to the right julienne. It's actually super fine julienne. It is, you know, if, if it's not super fine, then when you eat it right, you get too much of one thing. And nasi ulam is not about that. Nasi ulam is about balance of all the other things. Okay, and you and and why is nasi ulam not celebrated? I, I don't understand. And you know. When people talk to me, and that's why I say, hey, have you eaten nasi ulam there? And I try it. And I tell them, my, my God, how can you say this is nasi ulam? Because it's not. It's all wrong. 
you know so the challenge here is not enough people understand heritage food I, i'm not kidding you you know you mean not in the taste or do you mean the context behind the taste, the the taste. taste and the complexity of the execution of the dish let me explain to you yeah i only have right now two people in the kitchen that cook when i say cook they execute all the dishes i mean besides me so me and someone else okay the others all don't cook you know why 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 don't they cook why must i and someone else only cook because ha they have no heart how do and you, i know how how do you tell that someone has no heart in that when i see the person cook i can tell straight away how he stirs how patient he is to wait before the next ingredient goes in yeah you can see straight away but there's nothing wrong with that because there are other things that they need to do some are, some of them are really good at cutting so i tell them to cut some of them no it's true so everybody in the kitchen has a special place right so if you talk about cooking let's say you talk about cooking in elbuyi what is cooking in elbuyi is it really cooking 30 kilos of meat it never happens nobody cooks 30 kilos of meat in a fine dining restaurant you try and cook 30 kilos of meat with heart hmm. it's almost impossible and i tell you right there are times that i cook it and it tastes good and there are times that i cook it it tastes damn good why why is there a difference like i said to you perfection doesn't exist in a heritage kitchen it doesn't perfection only exists in a michelin star restaurant but not in a heritage kitchen because it's very hard to get perfection is it it's almost impossible. Is it because of because the changes? Your ingredients change. Um, I, I tell you, when you're angry, you cook very different. When you, I'm not kidding you, yeah. When you're angry, you cook very different. When you're happy, seriously, true. it's true. true. Yeah, it's true. But but in a in a fine dining restaurant, even you're angry, whether you're happy, it's there. The recipe is there. You cannot fault. If you fall, you're fired, right? Because anybody can come in and take your place. Is that simple? I cannot hire someone to come and cook the next day. I can't. Mm. So are you saying Sorry. that it's really hard to standardize heritage cooking? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Is that because of the aga-aga nature of it? Like where it's everything yes. by taste and by sight? I, I, I tell you, I have a recipe and most of the chefs follow it. Most of them follow it, right? But you know, I still have to go and taste it. Because at times the recipe, right, it still comes out wrong. Because the dried chilies are different and they don't know. Because the shallots are too wet and they don't know. Because the blue ginger is too young and they don't know. Because the lemongrass is not fragrant enough and they don't know. Because the yellow turmeric is not you know it's not old enough and they don't know so there's so many variants right and you know it's it's a kind of it's a kind of cuisine right 
where you have to know each and every ingredient, right? And you know, to a lot of to a lot of um, restaurants, right? Turmeric is turmeric. You want to be safe? You buy one hundred percent turmeric powder. Safe. One tablespoon is one tablespoon. You get one hundred ml of water. That's what you're gonna get, right? Mm. Yeah, that's perfection. Yeah, it does not exist in heritage cuisine. I agree. The hardest thing about making kuih is that your ingredients are always changing. Your tapioca varies in terms of starch. It's not like Western baking. It's not like baking a cake where flour or sugar You're is right. standardized. You're right. So kuih is all about soul. Kuih is not about recipe. You have to know your ingredients. Okay. Um, a classic example is bunga, is, is bunga telan. Your blue pea flour. Mm. Okay. So your blue pea flour... They are different. You know there's double lip and single lip, right? Yeah. Yeah. So the double lip is what you want to use because the color of the double lip is much better than single lip. And then when you, when you add water, you have to know the right color. You cannot take 100 grams of blue pea flour and one liter of, of water and then you boil for 30 minutes and that's it all the time. It's not like that. It varies. Okay? So the same with your, with your glutinous rice. The same with your eggs. What kind of egg? Usually, you know, when someone tells you 20 eggs, extra large egg, medium eggs, okay, that's one. But then again, when you, when you beat the eggs, how long do you beat it for? Right? You know, it's like making, a classic example to me is like when you make kueh salad, right? I don't use a recipe per se. I cook kueh salad by feel. Mm. I, I know it's frustrating. Right? Because people are like, how can you cook it by feel? I say, I do it by feel. You know? See, you have a recipe, it's easier. I say, no, it's not easier. You know, if you do it long enough, you can actually do it by feel. Of course, the sugar stays. Mm. You know, the, the sugar is like, if it's 300 grams, then it's 300 grams. But the rice. So I, I usually cook the glutinous rice first. Most people just steam it. They soak overnight. I don't even soak. My rice overnight. Hey, why are you sure or not? I says, no, I don't soak my rice overnight. I cook it on the fire and then I steam it for half an hour. And my rice comes up perfect all the time, right? But when I steam it, when I put it in the second time, I look at the rice and I tell myself, okay, this one I've got to steam for five minutes at the very most. And I says, why the last time you steamed 10, why not five? I say, because it, it's just different. I don't know. It must be the, you know, the, the, um, um, it's the atmosphere. There's so many things. Maybe it's the, the steam oven. You know, it's generating more liquid than anything else. So, yeah, it's all about, it's all about, it, you, you know, if you give someone a recipe, right, with kueh, right, it will never be the same. Hmm. It will never well, be the same. When something is so complex and so intuitive, how can we truly learn about heritage food? Well, you know, I started, I started somewhere, right? And I always feel, you know, if I, if this, if this person that you're talking to now, right, that's so, you know, you know, I, I, I wasn't just, I wasn't just mischievous. I was naughty. You know, I was naughty to the extent that I think my, if my parents had a chance of giving me away, they would. Okay. Um, but eventually I, I, I told myself that this is what I wanted to do. Right. I, I wanted to cook. Um, and, and I did it for a while. Um, and then I went to do something else and then I came back to it again. And I, I've, I always felt that 
you need to have this inside of you. The most important thing right now, and I'm very fortunate to have that, and I know a lot of people don't have that, I have taste memory, right? Uh, and that's very important. It's important because I can remember things I ate when I was, I'm not kidding you, yeah, six, seven years old. I can remember. My, my taste memory, I honestly, I don't know how I, I don't know how I do that. I swear to you, I don't know how I do that. But I think, you know, someone asked me the other day, what is the, what is the first thing you had, right, that blew you away? You know? And I tell you, you, you know what, I'm not kidding you, right? Fried fish and black sauce with rice. I'm not kidding you, you know? I, my mom used to feed me with just black sauce and butter. <laughs> right? And you know, and you know where that came from? No. You'll be surprised. You'll be so surprised. Which, which country you think black rice, soya sauce and butter originated from? You'll be so surprised, man. I have no idea. Japan. It was brought to Singapore, it was taught to us during the Japanese occupation. Mm. Soya sauce and butter. <laughs> okay? Yeah. So mom used to feed us with soya sauce and butter and I used to love it. Okay? Dark soya had that sweetish, it was salty, but butter had that creaminess, that, you know, that salt, yeah. uh, you know. And then one day she put fried fish in it and it just blew me away, you know. Wow. The crispy bits of the, of the fried fish, the juicy parts with the rice, with the butter, you know, with the black sauce. And my God, this is the best thing I've eaten my whole life. <laughs> the memory yeah. still sticks in my head. And I tell you this, right, once in a while, right, I get the craving, you know. <laughs> I remember one day doing it, right? And my children were like, Dad, are you okay? I'm like, what? Why are you eating butter and black sauce with fried fish? Because I miss it. You know, this is, what, this is what your grandmother used to feed me, man. I miss it. So, well, it's simple things, right? But hey, this memory is so important, man. It makes you happy, you know? Mm. Okay, Chef, I have one last question for you. So, I read something that KFCito wrote about you a while ago. He wrote that your cooking is very raceless. That is the word that he used to describe your kind of food. He said, you know, your kind of food is not strictly Eurasian or Paranakan, but it reflects a diversity of ethnicities and races in Singapore. And I was just thinking that it's very unique because a lot of us, we tend to cook within our own, like what we are familiar with, the kind of flavors that we grew up with. And I was wondering how... How do you think we can be respectful of people's cultures while being adventurous with trying to cook someone else's uh, cuisine? I think that's, that's very easy to do. You know? I think you have, you have to eat, try, and eat whatever is on the table. Okay? Um, if you're a food writer, right, and you're going out to to interview an Italian restaurant. And before the food is brought, you tell him, ah, sorry, I don't eat tomatoes. It's, it's difficult, you know, yeah. right? So I think you should, you should try everything. And if you don't like it, then you don't like it. But the, the best thing to do is to try everything. Um, that, I think, is the start of beginning to appreciate what the other cultures offer, right? 
Um, my first taste of gulab jamun when I was probably about, I think I was nine, right? I'm not a sweet person. I'm a savory person. When I put that gulab jamun, because the, 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 my friend said to me, hey, it's not sweet, it's not sweet, don't worry. But it's Indian, right? You know, Indian, when they say not sweet, they must oh, be sweet. <laughs> so I put the gulab jamun in my mouth and I'm like, God, this is so sweet, you know? Then I just slowly, I, you know, I, 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 I swallowed it and then, and then I finished it. And then he asked me, is it good? I said, it's good, but it's too sweet for me. You know, I said I would like it, it was less sugar, right? So, this answers your question. So you have gulab jamun, and you know that it's good. So you say, look, you go to your friend, can you do me a favor? Can you ask your mother to pass me the recipe? So you take your mother's recipe. If she's willing enough, I mean, you smile and you say, well, auntie, your gulab jamun is so good, auntie, right? She gives you the recipe, you bring it back. You follow the exact ingredients, you lessen the sugar. Is it wrong? No. Because the recipe is all there. Right? The only thing that's the only thing that's not there is that instead of one kilo of sugar, you use five hundred grams. That's it. So you have to go and try everything. Yep. And this is how a lot of the dishes in Singapore evolved. Yeah. From the different races, we all went to eat and we all asked their mothers. All grandmothers, auntie, can I have the recipe? And when we went back, we took a dish that was initially pork and we changed it to chicken. Mm. Why? Because in our homes, we didn't like pork. We ate chicken. It's not about Muslim. There are homes where people don't want to eat pork, don't want to eat beef, or, you know, and then they use pork. So, you, that's what I do, right? It's not, I go and eat everything. And I copy exactly what the dish is like. I copy exactly. I actually take recipes from aunts, my friend's mothers. This was a long time ago because my grandfather um, used to have friends over and they used to cook. And I used to write down, you know, what the recipe is all about. And I, I think that's the best way to do it, you know. Why just stick to... You know, one ethnicity. Oh, I can cook Indian and I cook it really well. Oh, I can cook Peranakan. Because, you know, there's so much out there. You know, when you talk about Chinese, right? It's Teochew, Hokkien, Hokchu, Hainanese, Hakka, Cantonese. It's never ending, you know. And there's so much of it, right? There's so much of it. So if you embrace all the different ethnicities, you'll be able to execute nearly, you know, whatever, whatever recipes you have. And that's what I have done. Mm. So the Indian recipes came from Indian neighbors. Seriously, they came from Indian neighbors. The Chinese recipes came from, came from my grandfather's friends and some of my neighbors. The Malay recipes, most of them came from Auntie Zaina and my grandfather's friends. The Eurasian recipes came from my aunts, came from my grandfather, came from his sister, came from my, my you know, they, from everywhere. And then the Pranakan, it's the same thing. You know, so I, I, I embrace everything about Singapore's ethnicity because I find that that's the only way to appreciate who you are.
If you see you, if you say, you know, I'm Singaporean, I can proudly say, hey, I'm Singaporean. And you ask me about any ethnicity, the culture, I can tell you. I can tell you stories. I can tell you, you know, um, where it where it originates from, how it evolved. Why? Because I was curious when, when I was, was a young boy. You know, I went, uh, Auntie, why is this like that? And she would tell me. You know, and you know, it's not that. It's not that I I I wanted to become a chef. I had no. There was no reason for me to become a chef, honestly, because I knew how much hard work it was, right? I mean, my, I, you know, child labor was very prevalent then, you know? And, no, it's true. It's yeah, true. Yeah, like in households, especially. Yeah, it's very true. Even Eurasian, the same. I tell you. Look, like Chinese, Indian, Malay, everything then, you know, right? Um, I can, I, I, sometimes when I cook for my staff, right, once in a while when I, when I get, you know, when, when I want to eat something, right, I will do something to you, you know? And then they will all look at me and they're like, where did this guy get this recipe from? You know what I mean? Because some of them are Teochew and they can't even cook it. Ooh. I find that really sad. It's yeah. sad. You know, it's sad. So, like I said to you, what, I think what we need to do, we need to embrace our ethnicities, mm. our ethnic group first, and then our culture, and then eventually our neighbours and friends. Hmm. I think that's so important for this day and age where we are increasingly isolated and segregated. Yeah. This has been such an honor. It was a real pleasure. Not at all. Pleasure.